Welcome back to another episode of Space and 60. Hey guys. Andrew, is that you? <laughs> Andrew is the Canadian Chad. Because I sound like Chad, yes, this is Andrew. That's what we've been told by multiple people now. So we'll just we'll keep with it. <laughs> oh, wait a second. Chad, no, Chad's the American Andrew. Is that <laughs> there we go? I want to bring this up later as we get a chance to talk to today's guest, but one of the things I'm super excited about is the inspiration for launch that's coming up this week with a totally commercial crew. I believe it's coming up on the 15th. So by the time this airs, actually will have already happened. This is new space. Yeah. Speaking to the future in the past. Yeah, this is this is very back to the future. Yep, yeah, exactly. new space, new space. Yeah. I'm really excited. I just recently watched the episode on Netflix about Inspiration4 that I guess it was produced by SpaceX. And we've got a physician's assistant that's going up that works at St. Jude. We've got a volunteer from St. Jude. We've got an ordinary billionaire. So none of this fancy stuff, just an ordinary guy that's earned a billion dollars that is going up as the pilot of the, the crew. And I'm so excited to go watch it. And by the time you hear this podcast, I will have gone last Wednesday to watch. Oh, so you'll be able to actually get there and watch a launch? It's going to be happening late in the evening. I think it's at 8 p.m. in the evening. So I'm going to be going out onto the beach and watching it with my family from the back of a pickup doing tailgating, American style. You can have a barbecue? Probably not. Probably no barbecue. Then it's not really tailgating, is it? I, you know, I don't know if you've been to a launch on the beach in the back of your pickup or in a car, but it's a little bit of a chaotic scene out there. Probably not the easiest place to tailgate. We'll, we'll likely do it from a, a hill that we've backed up onto, but I'm looking forward to it and can't wait to see it. Can't be any more of a chaotic scene than like tailgating at a Stampeders game. What's that? Is that Canadian football? Canadian football, real football. Does that count? Wait, that's the, the Stam. Say, <laughs> what's the name of that team? Stampeders. Calgary, Calgary Stampeders. Stampeders. Is that who The Rock played for? Dwayne Johnson? I think he played for Calgary, didn't he? Oh, no. Now you're going to make me look. He's somebody today. <laughs> I think he played at Florida State. No, Miami. University of Miami. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry for any yeah, of he's our... He's probably uh... <laughs> going to call in. He's probably going to call me again after this show and, and straighten me out. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he played at University of Miami. And then I think he played for Calgary. Then he did that whole WWE thing before he got famous and, and was an actor. He did. He did play for the Stampeders. See? I mean, even the American knew that, Andrew. Come on. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm a transplant to Calgary. That's that's my that's my eject. Anyway, not related to space at all. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got a great show coming up. All right, introducing our guests from formerly Rapid Eye, our good friend Cam Shahid, who drove the satellites. He reset the satellites. You know, a little control alt delete reboot. Just a great all round satellite engineer. Welcome, Cam. Welcome to Space in 60, Cam Shahid. 
Thank you very much. Happy to be here. A little no, nervous. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not really happy to be it's here. A ch- it's a chance to talk to, to you and Andrew, you know, like I know you guys. And chat. And chat. And, chat and, and I get to meet chat. Yes. So. I'm the new one. I'm the nice one. Just for the record. Don't believe that Andrew is just because he's Canadian. And so the history here is Cam worked with us at RapidEye. Cam was the guy that was driving the RapidEye satellites around orbit. But Cam, you, I'm sure you have met actually Chad because Chad was at one of the enables, weren't you? I wasn't. <laughs> no, they... Uh... They wouldn't let Chad out of the country. No, it's I'm pretty good with names and faces. And I was and I was staring at the Chad's face. I'm like, no, I'm not. Nothing's triggering an archival memory or anything like that. Oh, man. Sorry. That's okay. I'll send you a picture just so you can have one to keep. Let's let's talk about how we how we know each other, guys. So I think that's a great place to get started today. Cam drove the satellites at RapidEye. And it's rumored that you were in control of the joystick, right? Yes, the joystick that never plugged into anything. I we jokingly had one, put one there in the control room just to have people. Like when we gave tours, I could see people just like eyeing it, going, "Like, the, can I touch it?" I'm like, "It doesn't do anything." We put it there as a joke. <laughs> it's a lot like the introduction to Simpsons, right? The Actually, little yeah. steering wheel. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. Like, there's not. I wish there was a, a cool way. It's just code, and it's just scripts that you upload to tell the satellite what to do. You know, there is no, there's no, there's no like engage button or anything like that. It's just <laughs> you uploads and it goes right. And there, space in sixty just bursts everybody's bubbles on how to run a satellite. Oh, I'm kind of disappointed. I was hoping it was like one of the Atari satellites, like the old school ones. And then you just click the top button to collect an image. And vaporize the aliens, invaders. I love Missile Command on Atari. That, that was pretty cool. <laughs> then Cam, other than satellite driver as a job description, what exactly is it that you do? Like, how did you end up in the space business? What do you What do you do? Academically, I went all the way. So I'm I, I'm an aerospace engineer. I, I went bachelor's, master's, PhD, all the way through with a specialty in satellite dynamics and control. Thinking that I might go to academics, I actually did a postdoc at Technion, which is the university in Israel, because the one professor who I admire and respect, you know the old ad, careful what you wish for? I applied for one postdoc position, one only. That's it. I got accepted. <laughs> so that's how my wife ended up in Israel for a year and a half. And from there, that's then I moved to Germany. And that's when I joined RapidEye. So my background has always been in space satellite systems and orbital mechanics. Orbital mechanics has always been my favorite topic. Orbital mechanics. What is exactly an orbital mechanist, machinist? What would it be? More like I mean, mission, mission analysis. It's like so like mission design. So like for the RapidEye system, you know, you want to have, you have a certain mission profile. We want to image this frequency we want to image this area so then you then you design a system that will have the amount of revisit time coverage and the ability to communicate with a ground station in a timely manner that will accomplish the objectives of the of the business objectives of the mission which is then transformed into technical requirements for the satellite system what's it like to drive a satellite <laughs> what's it like to drive a satellite I've never even thought of it that way. We were asked. To be honest, I think I think it's really 
first of all, like it always, it's always been cool. It's always been amazing. It was never a job for me. I always thought of it as going into the office with some cool guys that I work with and, and I get to play with some equipment that's flying around the earth every 90 minutes. It's mind blowing when you take a step back and you look at it. And I always did that on a, on a regular basis because I never like lost the appeal for it. And I've always tried to keep in perspective that this is pretty awesome. Like what I get to do. It's a lot of detail on, to answer your question. How, what is the drive? A lot. It's a lot of analysis. It's a lot of data and it's a lot of decision-making based off of that data. The biggest thing is everything has to be planned ahead of time, way ahead of time. Like you're going to task the satellite for like 12 or 24 hours at a time. Driving the satellite is not necessarily something you're doing, you're going to do in real time. You're going to actually task the satellite to do something over the next 24 hours. What do you think then about these systems that are, are coming on the market today where the users can task the satellites themselves and they're retasking and reconfiguring the tasking commands every hour, every 30 minutes, every 15 minutes, rather than every 12 hours or so. Like, How does that affect someone that is in charge of organizing the path of these satellites? And suddenly this is in the software realm that an ordinary user can make a request. I think it's interesting that you can do that. I don't see the utility of it, to be very honest. Like on the RapidEye side, I don't see how a user is really that concerned with knowing what the attitude commands need to be to point a satellite in a different direction. There's a few geeky users who would have that would be really cool, but for the most people, they want to image over a certain region. That's what they're concerned about. I want to see this area. Well, you realize our entire listening body are the geeky ones, and you just alienated our entire audience. I've never shied away from from expressing my opinion. Like, I personally don't see the huge utility of that. Aside from the people who want to do, like, I would love to be able to do that, but somebody on the sales side or somebody on the image processing side wouldn't necessarily care on how the image is acquired, just so long as it is done so in a timely manner. That's fair, but I think there's a big, big opportunity here for Atari uh, Atari joystick sales. Atari's are back, baby. You got it. What if you could do a VR helm and then actually see where the satellite is looking? Ooh, I, I, I like, do like that going. idea. Yeah. yeah. So someone that I would consider an expert in the field, Cam, what do you think are some of the most exciting things that you're seeing in the industry today with satellite constellations? Things like what SpaceX is doing with their incredible coverage of internet access to remote areas. I think that's really incredible. OneWeb is also doing that along the line. And it's Gary, I always get his last name wrong, Wielder or Wilder. He's the one who drove OneWeb. The ability to provide, it sounds like an insignificant thing, the ability to provide internet to remote areas. But you think about the developing world where their infrastructure is not present. There's, you don't have internet cables or fiber, fiber lines running everywhere. The ability to provide telemedicine to remote areas, the ability to provide education to remote areas is huge. And I think from the human side, like that has a huge impact to the potential quality of life, people living in those areas. I'm really I'm excited to see how the propagation of internet across the world on how they will affect not people like me down in a big city like Calgary, like how does it affect like remote regions in the Middle East or remote regions up north? How will it affect those people's lives is what I'm really interested in seeing. Well, not to take away from what you're saying, Cam, but why don't we just ask 
Clint and Chad because both of these guys <laughs> have the sketchiest internet I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm in the third world country of Orlando, Florida, where the internet goes out almost every other day, followed by the electricity. Mine's not quite as bad. I mean, it went out today and I do live out in the middle of nowhere, but I did find out it was actually clipped somewhere by some construction crews. So, well, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, but Kim, I totally agree with you that that's one of the most exciting things in space technology in the satellite world today is seeing where that's going to go. And there's even a really cool publication that talks about how all of the internet access that's coming to remote parts of the world will fuel a much larger market in agriculture. It's called EO for Ag. I think I know the author of that one. I've read similar types of studies, and it really is exciting on how this advanced technology in space systems can affect an average individual who would not normally have access to this type of technology. Right. And if you think about how much that's going to change the market, essentially, as I understand it, there are about 1 billion people today that have access to the internet and remote capabilities. That means there are about 6 billion people that don't have access today. And so how much is that going to change the banking industry, the agricultural industry, the energy business, anything that has to be remote. Education, just start at the very basics. Education. I mean, it's going to be mm -hmm. fundamental shift across the world. It's going to be revolutionary. And one of the things I'm curious about is you get into to countries that restrict internet and filter internet. I mean, are we going to see a black market for SpaceX dishes and free internet? And how's that going to evolve? That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Like market for internet access. Well, I mean, and think about too, what some of the movements in the world that we've seen that have happened over the last 10 years, like with the Arab Spring, how much of that was fueled by social media and internet access to be able to come together as a movement on the fly? How much is that going to affect parts of the world, like let's say North Korea or some of the restricted areas like that where they don't have access? If you do have that black market access or some sort of infiltrated access to information, how much is that going to fuel democracy around the world? I was actually, before just logging, I was actually going to BBC News and I've been watching what's been happening in Afghanistan with the Taliban just sweeping through the country and now they're in charge. Related to what you just said, I think they're being very cautious about what they do is because they realize they're on air across the world like people can will report what they're doing and they don't have the free hand they had like decades ago when they were running through afghanistan doing whatever they wanted so i think this this will also hold governments and other and other areas to task being the fact that they are in the public eye of the internet type of thing where you can't just quietly do something people will find out and tweet or post about it truly a world stage so what else is going on in the space industry, Kim? I think you've got a unique insight on that beyond driving satellites, beyond the launch industry, I think is changing tremendously. Do you have any insights on that and your perspective? They're supposed to be launching rocket launch facilities built in Eastern Canada and then somewhere in Scotland, like some of these locations where you would normally never put them, but they're developing these launch platforms. Like what Rocket Labs is doing with their smaller launch platforms is really cracking into SpaceX's kind of whole 
they had for a while, I think, that a lockdown on the launch market. But you're seeing some of the smaller launch providers coming in and chipping away at it, which is significantly reducing the per kilogram cost to launch. That's the biggest impediment for some of these potential satellite companies to be able to get access to launch has always been the blocker. I mean, one of the reasons why RapidEye, well, we all know, went bankrupt. I mean, part of it because one of the huge biggest budgets of that was the launch cost. I'm not an electrical engineer, but I could build a satellite here. It's not hard for anybody to do. The components are cheap. You can get them off the shelf. You can buy packages to build a satellite. But me getting it to space is a different thing altogether. The launch industry is really driving down the cost and reducing the barrier to entry to space. I was going to say the launch of RapidEye was pretty cool because it was a repurposed ballistic missile, was it not? It was a Nieper. Yeah, it was a decommissioned ICBM missile. I'm actually, I remember the launch, it actually came out of the ground and it for a split second just hovered there and the other uh, propulsion system activated. Yeah. That's pretty amazing to be repurposing and recycling formerly war technology for commercial purposes and exploration of space. I mean, I think that that also encompasses what new space is all about is going at it with repurposed technology and doing it in a, in a better way. I think that was one of the last few Nieper launches because uh, there's only a certain amount of stockpile that they had left over. That's true. That's true. And I was going to say, Cam, you know, as you talked about the launch vehicles coming out of Canada, speak of our former guests, we had the Richard and Daniel from C6 launch speak about their company and, and what they were doing to, uh, to bring that to market. It's pretty, uh, it was a good interview. I think that's one of the other things that along with driving the price down and getting in, uh, one of the things we talked about in that too, is being able to get to different orbits. You're not strapped on the same rocket and being just dropped off where you can. This is going to open the world of technology into different orbits and kind of optimized orbits for different sensors. You make a good point, Chai, because as a secondary payload, you get what you get. You don't get to pick the exact orbit, but with somebody like Rocket Labs, they can actually put you, you're the primary now. There's only a few satellites on there, so you can get in the orbit that you need, which is really important for achieving the mission of the satellite system. Getting into the right orbit is a big driver for that. So are you building any satellites at, at your new place? Sadly, I actually do not work in the space industry. I work more on machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is something I always wanted to work on. And that's actually for, I'm actually working on that in the agricultural field. I'm excited about it because this has been a topic that I've been wanting to play around with. And now it's actually in my job description. I still follow what's happening in the space industry and keep an eye on, on all of the new advancements and the progression. I'm still in touch with a lot of my contacts at other companies just to chat with them once in a while to see what is happening in their neck of the woods, what they can share with me publicly type of thing. You know, I think that's one of the unique things about the space industry is it really just gets in your blood and you don't get rid of it. It's something that is really a part of you. And and people in this industry are just so passionate about what they do, especially in the new space segment. You don't have that same big corporate attitude. You've got a bunch of people that are really the cowboys of the business doing things completely differently. And when you come up through the industry, such as you have, Cam, you get to see a lot of really unique things that in the, the big corporate structures out there that you don't get to see or don't get to participate in and try new things. And 
Something that you said earlier that spurred my thinking, Cam, we had a, a guest probably 10 or 12 weeks ago, Mariba Jaw, and one of the things that he was talking about was the propagation of huge numbers of satellites in space or targets that we're tracking, and they're just getting to be so many up there. And what you mentioned about the ride to space is becoming a lot easier to make happen. You're also getting the cost down and it's starting to put more objects up there that we need to track and be cognizant of. And one of the questions that, that one of my kids asked me just today when we were talking about the Inspiration 4 that's going up next week is, hey, how do they know they're not going to hit something with all of these objects and satellites as they're launching? you have any thoughts on that with all of the the new objects that we're seeing in space and launching through that belt of, of objects that we track or maybe that we aren't able to track? It's funny you mentioned Mariba. I've never met him, but I have him on LinkedIn. I connected with him through Enrico. It's a small world. So we chatted a little bit here and there, not a lot, but yeah. So he's heavily into space traffic monitoring as he refers to it. Space debris was not that big of a deal decades ago, but now if you look at how much is up there and the potential for a disaster. And I'm going to say, I think I believe the, the Kessler effect, where if you, you have a cascade effect where of, of a collision that's producing debris that can collide with other objects and, and continue on. I don't know what the solution to that is. There are policies in effect now that anything that's put up in space in low Earth orbit has to deorbit naturally or artificially within 25 years. In geostationary, you have to put it in a parking orbit to get it out of any potential harm's way. There are satellite bodies up there that will be up there for the next, that are high enough, they will be up there for the next 100 years. And there's no good solution to that except coming up with some way of cleaning up some of the larger bodies in space. However, there's an associated cost with that. And who's going to pick up the bill and clean up the region in space? I've never had to worry about designing a launch window to avoid any objects that I might collide with. But now I'm seeing those type of studies taking place. As what you said, there's more garbage floating around up there, and there's a potential of hitting something at launch. It hasn't happened yet, but it is a high possibility. And I remember getting NORAD alerts on a regular daily basis, even for the rapid eye system, even being at the high altitude that we were, even for, and for a time I was running operation for the dove stylus as well. And the sheer number of alerts that you get over the number of years are increasing and increasing. And the potential for collision has been increasing with every new launch and every new satellite system that's put up there. Andrew, I'll address this one to you. I did hear a couple of weeks ago that the Canada arm took a bullet in space. It did. That's right. They had, uh, I guess, a picture up in, uh, in the news there on Space News little hole through the fabric uh, on shrewd, the yeah. arm, but yeah, didn't hit any critical components. I, I guess it didn't hit the center either. So it, just a graze flesh wound. It's a multi-python <laughs> reference. Well, that's the interesting thing too. Kind of, you mentioned the 25 years when everything needs to come down 25 years, you think about that and how much is being launched now and how much is planned to be launched over the next few years. 25 years is a long time with, you know, the speed that different, objects are getting into space it's a long time to wait to come down but when you're an old hat like cam with the golden atari joystick i mean <laughs> the little the little red light blinks collision alert and cam just jumps into the chair and steers it to safety 
At least that's what I picture, Cam. Well, it's more like you perform a collision maneuver and hope that your collision avoidance maneuver isn't making it worse. It's a double-edged sword, right? So something's coming at you. I'm going to move this way. Well, by moving, am I actually going to hit something else? You have to do that type of analysis along the way. We actually outsource that analysis because there's a lot of compute number crunching that has to happen. For the Dove satellites, it's funny because they don't have any propulsion on them. So the best that could be done is put them in a, basically what I call a tuck and roll orientation. You put the, the smallest area exposed to the collision plane so that, like I said, you essentially you're tucking and rolling. That's the best you can do because you, you can't get out of the way. Are, are you aware of what today's date is? September 8th. I'm a bit foggier. You know what begins <laughs> in most of the U.S. on September 1st? Dove season. Is it dove season? Okay. <laughs> I, was like, I, was, I was thinking, is there a holiday that I missed out or something? A dove season. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what's what's right. going on here? Yeah, I was drawing a blank too, Cam. This is- so that might be a strategy. Dove season. I think this is a real problem. It's also something that we've got to start taking into account. And I have to tell you, last night I watched the new Netflix series on Inspiration4, which is SpaceX's completely commercial crew. None of them are astronauts headed to space on the 15th next week. And I got to tell you, it's it's amazing. I'm not normally one to promote something you know, on Netflix or Amazon Prime or anything like that, or EO for ag. But I will say, that that was really an amazing show and you have to watch it. But we were, we were going through it and watching it and it's suddenly you've got a real situation where space tourists are going to space. They're going to be orbiting and spending significant and meaningful time in space. And someone that is at the helm is a civilian pilot, but wow, dealing with space debris and maneuvering, I'm sure most of that is handled from the ground, but that's a that's a totally different ballgame that we're having crews that that need to deal with this. You need to be launched, possibly in a scenario where collision is is a possibility. Maybe it's not large, but it's real. And then you're in orbit for several days. What's funny? You're, you're talking about a commercial pilot in the pilot seat. Well, here's an interesting fact: in space, if you fire your thruster in the along the direction that you're moving, you're going to slow down. You're not going to speed up. <laughs> You're going to slow down. Basic physics, right? Well, it's oral mechanics, but it's not what we're used to. When you hit the gas pedal on a car, you expect to go faster. But for the average person who doesn't understand oral mechanics, you say that and they're like, it blows their mind that things fly in space in such a way that's counterintuitive to how we move on the ground. I was just thinking about that when you mentioned that there's a commercial pilot in the pilot seat. It's actually, Cam, not that far off if you do take pilot lessons. When you're coming in for landing, if you point your nose down towards the runway, you're actually going to go flying farther because you're accelerating towards the earth and creating more lift. So likewise, flying an airplane, maybe not as counterintuitive as flying a satellite, but still also counterintuitive. You say that as if you're knowledgeable, like firsthand knowledge. Are you a pilot, Andrew? I was a pilot back in the day. I had no idea. I've known you forever, and I had no idea you were a pilot. (laughs) Yep, I had my commercial multi-IFR license, the works. So are you what people would call a a bush pilot? (laughs) I 
made a wholehearted attempt to be a bush pilot. Yes. Yes. And then I decided being in the bush was pretty hazardous. I think you flew with him. Well, I flew with a man by the name of Lars in Alaska. Lars, Lars stories are the best. For those of you who are space enthusiasts, I'm going to deviate into uh, aviation for just a moment. So I was in Alaska one time and really cool story. One of the coolest guys you'll ever meet. I went flying with a friend. His name is Lars in Alaska. So for those of you listeners here in Alaska, there's only one Lars in Alaska. He's about 6'6" a mountain of a man. And he took me out flying in a two-seater airplane. And one of the most amazing and scary experiences of my life all at the same time, we went up flying, we viewed some glaciers, we flew over some forested area, we landed on a frozen riverbed. And this is my favorite aviation story of all time. We get out of the airplane and Lars steps out. It's the Philly cheesesteak. It's the Philly cheese. That you, great. You still want thunder. So, <laughs> so no, we, we get out and Lars says, hey, Clint, he's a German guy that's just wholeheartedly adopted Alaska. So he's imagine with a little bit of a German accent. He says, Clint, are you hungry? And I said, sure. What have you got? And so he opens up his coat and he's got a Philly cheesesteak in the inside pocket of both sides of his trench coat. He's got this really long black trench coat and he pulls a Philly cheesesteak out of each side. He opens the hood on the engine of the airplane, lays the Philly cheesesteak on the engine, shuts the hood, and he pulls out a 45 and we go for a walk. <laughs> and I said, Lars, what's the gun for? And he says, wolves. And so like, I'm already thinking, okay, I'm, you know, I'm good friends with this guy, but why do you need a gun, Lars? Anyway, we go for a walk, we come back and he opens the hood, he pulls out the Philly cheesesteak and we have a picnic right there on the frozen riverbed in Alaska, not too far from the glaciers we just flew over. Best experience I've ever had in aviation in my life. Thank you, Lars. You know who you are. I like that. Cooking on an engine. Yeah. And funny thing, funny thing. We fly into this place that like, I don't see any access possible except by aircraft. We land and we fill it up and he says, Clint, that'll be $200. And so, uh, okay, that was the best experience ever. So we fill up the the tank. <laughs> that was fun. The part that wasn't fun is that he took my friend Andrew and Lee flying and he charged them a hundred bucks. So thank you, Lars. <laughs> Mine came with a life insurance claim because after we had our Philly cheesesteaks <laughs> on the way back, we cracked a cylinder head. Oh. Engine was sputtering and there goes Lars. Andrew, brace. We might need <laughs> to land on the highway. Did he say brace, brace? No, we, we only had one brace. Wow. Yeah, that was that was cool. And it was my first landing that I've ever done coming in sideways. That was a little bit scary. I was definitely grabbing the sides of the airplane to brace myself at that point. So then afterwards, we we get back. And I mean, we only had one Philly cheesesteak each. And so we stopped and we had a couple of moose burgers. Was it caribou or moose burgers, Andrew? I think it was caribou. Yeah. So we had a couple of caribou burgers. It was awesome. Definitely flying in Alaska with Lars is one of the greatest experiences ever. So Cam, if you ever get a chance, I can highly recommend flying with Lars. I'll add that to the bucket list. Just get the joysticks out. And I'm sure Lars would appreciate flying a satellite as well. Oh, yeah. We can make that happen. <laughs> Just get the joysticks out. The Atari, the Atari joysticks. So, Cam, we know what's exciting to you in the space industry. You've driven satellites 
or flown satellites for a living. What's next? Like we know it's exciting, but what do you think is next in the space industry? What should we all have to look forward to? Personally, I am just keeping an eye on the return to the moon. That is just going to be absolutely incredible. Like I was born in 1968. So all of this happened. (laughs) Yeah. Like no big surprise. (laughs) So all like these, the Apollo moon missions, they were done by the time I was a kid. I just read about them. And and now to be able to see, I watched some of the test firings of of the the launch system for, for the moon missions. And it's incredible to see. And for me, that's the biggest thing because I can actually trace back why I got an aerospace engineer. My dad used to have this set of encyclopedias and this dictionary, uh, Funk and Wagnalls. And at the first, the Wait, first, this is a this is a family, a family show. So watch your language. Funk and Wagnalls. Got it. Okay, I, made sure, go I made sure I pronounced it properly. And so at the beginning, there's a bunch of color photos that describe the Apollo missions. I can trace back my passion for space to those pictures and why I wanted to get into aerospace. So. For me, the return to the, being able to see the development of the systems and actually being here to see man returning to the moon, to me, is the most exciting thing. That's, that's supposed to happen in by 2025, I believe. I keep up to date on the news for that and the progress of, of the mission. I think that's one of the most exciting things coming up in the space industry as well. And manned space flight, unfortunately, it's expensive. And it's really hard for the new space industry to get to the contribution level that they would would want to in that piece and play a part. And we're seeing some of the mega companies really go down that path. But there are also some smaller companies out there as well that are really carving a path for lunar settlement and those types of things. You know of any of the, the smaller organizations out there that you think are starting to make an impact or will make an impact? I honestly can't answer that one. I, I haven't followed a lot, a lot of what the smaller companies are doing just been keeping an eye on some of the major companies. If I, if I can just throw in a random throw in, it was exciting to see Branson and Bezos do their flights within like a week of each other to promoting space tourism. So that's another thing that I'm also excited about seeing on potential public access to space at a price point that's only exclusive to, to millionaires and billionaires. I totally agree. I think that the space industry has a lot to offer. I can't wait to see what you do next in the space industry. Cam, you've definitely been someone that has contributed in no small way to the new space movement. And I, I don't think that people realize that the company that, that we all on this podcast have some ties to, the Rapid Eye Constellation, I don't think people realize how instrumental that was in the development of the new space movement. I mean, that company started in 1998, and then we saw the launch back in 2008, and it's kind of the grandfather of the new space movement and everything that has happened since then, especially in the satellite portion of new space has had some sort of ties to that. And so if we continue to see that same type of evolution and revolution in, in new space on the manned spaceflight opportunities, I I just can't wait to see what comes next and what you do next. Well, the funny thing is I, even though I'm not working in the space industry officially, I am doing some consulting work on some projects with some, with some startups as well. So I can't avoid it. I may not be officially involved in my exact job profile right now, but I'm, I still have my hands in the space cookie jar type of thing. I think we're going to see Cam do reality TV series of Cam, his wife, Michelle, two kids, two cats, do a space adventure as a family. The space driver 
it's got its name and everything's ready for it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, my wife is very adamant that I don't, I'm not allowed to go fly into space or anything. <laughs> You're not allowed to go to space right now. <laughs> You're not allowed to go to I'm grounded. Just grounded. Unless it's something like Lost in Space, like the Space Family Robinson or something like that. You know? Exactly. Well, Cam, it's been a pleasure to have you. You do have some homework, which is go back and listen to our podcast. I think you you missed a ton with Mariba Jaw. You can learn how to send your DNA to space. You can learn all about how spacesuits work. You can learn about Canadian launch capabilities in Eastern Canada. Encryption. We got encryption. Yeah. Quantum encryption. Learn about the Space Wrangler. Learn about those that are manufacturing small satellites on the cutting edge of technology. And then now we have the satellite driver. Cam, Thanks for joining the show. I know it was great for Andrew to have another fellow Canadian on the show. Level the playing field there. It's always good to have a Canadian. Keep things balanced. Plus, we bring technology to the field here. Like, we got good internet, right, Ken? <laughs> I got one gig fiber. I don't know what these guys are complaining about. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I want to thank you guys very much. I, I love talking about this stuff. And so I've always been passionate about it. And so for me, this is just... It was just just hanging out with some guys and just and just talking about stuff that really gets me excited and interested in uh, what I do. That's great. We'll come back anytime, Cam. We'd always enjoy having you, even if it's just to drop by and crash someone else's interview. We'd appreciate you thanks coming by. I may do that depending on who's there. That sounds like fun. All right. Well, thanks, Cam. It's been great having you on Space and Sixty. Thanks, Cam. All right. Take care. Cheers, guys. Cheers. That was a great show. It was great to have Cam on. I think it's a great episode, Dave. I like it. I agree. The satellite driver. That's going to be Cam's new uh, nickname. As long as we can get like a joystick somehow icon put onto it, we'll uh, we'll be in good good shape there. Have you ever had the chance to step in and do what Cam was doing? Like, did you ever sneak down in the Rapid Eye days to the control center and see if they'd let you run the satellites? No. No, no. Fully afraid of crashing them into something. It's not the way it works, Andrew. That's my fear. You dropped that nugget on us that you used to be a pilot and you had your license. <laughs> and all this talk of crashing, I, I can understand why you did not choose to pursue that. <laughs> I feel like I don't even know you anymore. Fair, fair point. Fair point, gentlemen. <laughs> when did you stop flying? Uh, it was shortly after university, after I got all my licenses, you know, I, I did a summer up in the bush and that was enough for me at that time. You ever have any close calls? A couple few. Yeah. I mean, part of the bush job is do whatever you have to do to get the flight done and had friends overload their planes and park them in trees and survive. And it, it's a tough, uh, tough way to get started. So the flight that I was talking about with Lars, we were almost overloaded just with Lars and myself. So <laughs> yeah, Lars alone, six foot six, brawny guy. Yeah, he looks yeah. like the brawny guy on uh, the brawny paper towels, just like a big lumberjack style guy. And I'm almost as tall as he is. And you can imagine the two of us stacked front to back. I'm right behind him in the airplane. Imagine, you remember that show Dumb and Dumber when they're riding down the highway on the scooter? <laughs> front to back. That's me and Lars. I had no idea we were going flying. So it's probably like minus 40 in there and I'm wearing a suit. So like nothing insulating it. I, I did have like a, a down jacket that I was wearing, but these really thin suit pants 
And I get in this plane and it's nothing like what I expected. The the wings were made of cloth. Lars has a business run around these airplane cloth. And so I'm thinking, okay, we've got two guys, like full-size guys going front to back in a two-seater on an airplane made of cloth. Needless to say, I was a little bit worried about that one. What happens in Alaska stays in Alaska. More than you know. (laughs) (laughs) And that's for another episode. Chad, do you have any hidden talents or anything that Andrew and I need to know about? Superpowers. Uh, Nothing I can talk about here. (laughs) I learned my lessons from Andrew. There we go. (laughs) Another great episode. Cam was great. I don't know how we keep getting such amazing guests, fun guests, those that you like to hear, but... I'm grateful for it, and I can't wait till he comes back for another episode. But until then, what a great episode, wrapping up Space in 60. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space and 60, where new space speaks. Mm-hmm.